In my home church in Refuge, uh, we've recently begun a new sermon series from the New Testament book of Acts. After maybe perhaps new to the Christian faith, it might help you to know that the, the title Acts is really a, a shorthand. The earliest title for this book was Acts of the Apostles. At least that's the, the earliest title we ever see in the writings of the early church fathers. But of course, this, this book isn't ultimately about the apostles. It's really about what Jesus Christ, you know, resurrected, ascended to heaven, did through the apostles. It's ultimately a book about how Jesus Christ begins to, to grow his church on earth and has it go out from being you know, in Jerusalem to Judea, that's the surrounding province, to places like Samaria, regions next door, to the ends of the earth. Acts, you know, it describes, you might say, how, how Christ built the church, but it's not a, a how-to guide for, for church building. We can, we can acknowledge that outright. We can say, look, you can't just say the things that work for them will automatically work for us. They were spreading the good news about Jesus to a world that had never heard about Jesus. Which hadn't heard the claim that Jesus is the Christ, i.e. the the Messiah. Jesus is the the resurrected Son of God. They were faced a very different situation today. We're trying to spread the gospel. We're trying to talk about Jesus in a world where, where everyone's kind of heard the name Jesus. They've heard different things. A lot of that is confusing, misleading, inaccurate. A lot of that is filled with prejudices and prior conceptions. We're going against that. But at the same time, there is, there is much to learn. There is much to be reminded of. As churches, if we wish to, to spread the gospel, if we wish to see not only our churches, but other churches grow, it is worth reflecting on how Christ first did it. It's worth focusing on the lessons that are there, that we might be instructed, that we might be encouraged in all that we're doing today. Now, in the sermon series we're doing in Refuge, we're not just kind of going through Acts verse by verse, chapter after chapter, but instead we're jumping around a bit. We're following one of the great missionaries of the church. Not an apostle, but a most generous, encouraging, forgiving, and committed follower of Jesus Christ, nonetheless. We're following the steps of a man known as the son of encouragement. Doing this that through him we might be encouraged as well as we seek to follow Jesus Christ. We first encounter this son of encouragement in Acts chapter 4. We're going to be reading from there. The very end of this reading will kind of serve as the the text, the focal point for this message. We're reading from Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 32, where it says this. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. 
With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. We'll get to the Malachi reading later, don't worry. His original name was Joseph. Not very original. Joseph was the second most common name for a Jewish man back then. We know that just based on the number of references we can find to people either in writings, sometimes on pottery shards, things like that. Second most common name in that day. You encounter a lot of Josephs in the New Testament. You can think of Jesus' adoptive father, Joseph. You can think of Joseph of Arimathea, the man who laid Jesus' body in his tomb. You can think of Jesus' brother, Joseph. The, Acts, the Joseph of Acts 4, yet another Joseph. But while his name wasn't very notable, and there's perhaps not much to say there, some other things about him were. First off, he was a Levite. Belonged to the, the tribe of Levi. You need to understand, all the Jews belonged to one of 12 tribes. Joseph was from the tribe of Levi, which was the best one. Maybe not best, but the most prestigious, the most honored, the most revered. The best tribe to belong to in that day and age. See, the Levites, they got to, to work in the temple. You know, the tribe of Levi was the tribe of the priests, the line of, of Aaron, the high priest. Not all Levites were priests, but all priests were Levites. Levites who were not priests, well, they would still get to help out the priests. If you were to, to go to the temple at the time of the New Testament, you know, there would be priests working there, but there would also be around them all these other Levites, and they would you know, help direct you to where you were to stand during times of worship. They would help you to offer up the sacrifices to slaughter the animals. The different parts can be thrown and the altar distributed. They would lead in the singing. They were the music team. They served as the gatekeepers. They were the ushers. And all of this, it elevated their social standing. It was a great, good thing to be a Levite back then. Not only was Joseph a Levite, he was also wealthy. We know this because he had land. We don't know how much land. We don't know if he later on sold all the land he had or just a little bit, but he had land. And if you had land, you were among the wealthy. It was as simple as that. Land back then, like land in the Fraser Valley today, or the Fraser Valley today, was valuable. 
But Joseph, someone who didn't seem to put too much regard in his status as a Levite or in his status as a landowner, he was willing to give this up. We encounter Joseph as a member of the early church. And in the early church, being a Levite didn't matter. It didn't matter you were a Levite because in the church, you're all priests. You'll have an upgrade. And in the church, being wealthy wasn't a sign that you were favored by God and one of his most special children. Being wealthy in the church meant you were someone who had opportunity to help others with your wealth and to do so in abundance. Joseph is someone who could have lived a very comfortable and privileged life, both spiritually speaking and materially speaking, if he had just remained a, a solid Jew, if you will. You know, someone offering up sacrifices in the temple, speaking the Shema, there is only one God. But instead, he decided to follow Jesus of Nazareth. He accepted the news that this Jesus had risen from the dead. This Jesus was the Son of God. And he was going to commit his life to following him even if it would involve him sacrificing some of his social status, some of his wealth. And see, in all this, we might say, Joseph, Barnabas as we'll later call him, he is an encouraging reminder to us that social status, wealth, possessions, the things the world values and tells us to value, are not the things which matter most. Joseph reminds us that we can have it all as far as our society is concerned, and you can still find something better, something more in Jesus Christ. And we also have an encouraging reminder in our text that the Holy Spirit has the power to help people see this truth. The early church wasn't just for those who were poor, desperate, who could obviously see their need for something more. And we often talk today in churches about the idea that, you know, some people are more likely to believe based on their social status or, or their wealth, their, their ethnicity, their education, their background, what have you. It would be very tempting for us to, to look at surveys of, you know, the backgrounds of people who have come into the Christian church in the last 10, 20 years and say, okay, what do we see here? Well, perhaps we see a, a lot of people, you know, from, from low-income households. Perhaps we see people from, from ethnic minorities, people who are immigrants to this country. We think, okay, that's the people we should go after then. 
Those are the people who are likely to believe. Those are the people we have our best shot with. But we shouldn't get too wrapped up in that kind of thinking. While there's nothing wrong with wanting to start a ministry that goes after a a certain group or reaches out to a certain segment of society, it is also important for us to always keep in mind in our lives that Jesus has amazing things to offer anyone we meet. You say, well, my unbelieving neighbor is the most stable person in the world. They don't believe in Jesus, want nothing to do with the Christian church. But, you know, they're married for decades. They got children who who turned out well. They seem to have plenty of money. Everything seems to be going decent in their life. I have nothing to offer them. What's there to say? We have to remember just how much Jesus has to offer all of us. How much he can offer us in terms of the forgiveness of our sins. How much he can offer in terms of transforming us from people who aren't just good by society standards, but good by God's standards. How much he can teach us about what it truly means to be someone who is loving and joyful and at peace. How much Jesus can offer us with regard to eternity. And this prospect of living forever. Knowing him. Knowing God. We need to remember how much Jesus has to offer and how much the Holy Spirit can help people to see it. Read through the book of Acts. You'll encounter not only Joseph, numerous other people who came from from privileged parts of society, who had wealth, who had status, who had the things that that world said, this is it. But who nevertheless saw that in Jesus Christ, there was even more to experience and receive. So much more that it would be worth giving up everything they possessed in order to have it. We follow a God who has the power to change people and the power to help people see the need to change The way that that Joseph comes to be a follower of Christ as a Levite points to a a beautiful fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. You're going to read this prophecy in in Malachi, the last book of the the Old Testament. We're going to read it together now. I'm going to point out a few things as we go along so it makes hopefully a bit more sense. But in Malachi chapter 3, we read the Lord speaking to his people, saying, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And there you can think of John the Baptist being sent. 
And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And we can think of the Lord Jesus Christ, who physically did go to the temple, who did announce to the people a new covenant, the words, it is finished. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears, for he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller soap. And we can think of how Jesus came, challenging the people, challenging the religious authorities, pointing to to true righteousness, pointing out it wasn't enough for them to try to, to follow the law and have all their extra little rules and regulations and safeguards. No, they required perfect righteousness, which is to say they required him. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi. Refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former days. You can read that and you think, okay, I'm pretty sure this kind of fully comes to pass, you know, when Jesus comes back, the second coming, the new Jerusalem, and all that. But you can also see how it starts to happen with someone like Joseph. One of the only people in the the New Testament who's specifically identified as a Levite. And how do we encounter? We encounter him making an offering. Giving up land that others might enjoy a more blessed life. See, Joseph, a Levite, brings an offering to the apostles, brings the kind of offering that God is truly pleased with. And that is something that God desperately wanted to see among his people. Malachi goes on, 5 to 12, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those thrust aside or thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. Your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. 
of hosts. What's going on there? Well, you have to see. Malachi is pointing out that the Levites, the other people, were failing to be generous. God speaks of of tithes or the the giving of a a tenth. You have to keep in mind that, that part of the reason for the giving of this tenth was to support the poor, the widows, the orphans, the foreigners living in the land. See, every third year, your tithe went to those people. One in three years, you didn't do anything personally with the tithe. You gave it up that others might be able to take that tithe, those goods, and be able to worship the Lord with them. They could go to the temple, make offerings because they had the things they needed for the offerings, grain, animals, what have you. And of course, the rest of the tithe, it it went to your own worship of the Lord. You know, Malachi's prophecy isn't that, you know, the temple needed more money back then. He was pointing out that the Israelites, in not giving the tithe, were not giving themselves. They didn't see it a priority to take things and go worship the Lord with them. Malachi condemns them for not wanting to spend time with God themselves and not wanting to help their neighbors spend time with God. And those are the, basically the closing words of the Old Testament, by the way. Malachi being the last prophet. So you have to imagine, basically the last thing God tells his people in the Old Testament is you need to be more generous. And then God refuses to talk to them for like 400 years. Maybe even longer than that. I could be wrong. That's just off the back of my head. But you have a period of hundreds of years. No prophets, no revelations, no nothing. Jews are like, where did God go? And then you get the New Testament. And you get this new group of people in Jerusalem who were declaring that, that Jesus of Nazareth, that wandering rabbi figure, was in fact the Son of God, the fulfillment of all the things God had been saying in the Old Testament. And what proof does that community offer up to the world that what they're saying is true? It is their generosity. It is the fact that among them, there are no needy because God has so radically changed hearts and minds that they will give up whatever they need to for one another. When we see someone like Joseph giving up land in order to provide for the poor, the needy, and the church, we see the power of the gospel. We see the power of grace. And what does it say in Acts chapter 4? They're all struck by the grace of God. The grace of God was powerfully among them. They didn't give because they were guilted into it. You know, because the pastor went up to the pulpit Sunday after Sunday and was like, you need to give more if you're to be good Christians. No. It was, look what we have in Jesus Christ. We have a Savior who has done everything so that we can be right with God. 
How do we live in response to that kind of good news? Now, that's all pretty big picture. Let's make it a bit smaller. To Joseph, God gives the gift of encouragement, we're told. Now, he, he gave him other gifts as well. Read about those later in Acts. But the gift of encouragement is what comes to define Joseph. The apostles give him the name Barnabas. Aramaic for son of encouragement. Bar, son, Nabis, encouragement. It doesn't mean he had a very encouraging father. I mean, maybe he did, we just don't know. But that's not the point of the name, son of encouragement. It's a way of saying that he embodied encouragement. It was who he was. Now, Jesus gave a similar kind of nickname to two of his apostles, James and John. Maybe you remember this. He called them, anyone? It's a bit obscure. The Bonergus, which means sons of thunder. In their case, it probably wasn't a compliment. It was a reference to the fact that they had hot-headed attitudes, or at least that's what we see in the Gospels. They were a bit full of themselves. You know, they were the ones who were all like, Jesus, can we call down fire from heaven on this unbelieving Samaritan village? And Jesus is like, calm down, guys. No. But in Barnabas's case, son of encouragement, it is a compliment. It's a compliment that that's basically the name he is given in the rest of the book of Acts. You don't read of Joseph. It's just Barnabas did this. Barnabas did that. He was an encouraging kind of guy. Read in Acts and you'll come across a number of situations which Barnabas is specifically said to have encouraged other believers. Sometimes he did this alone. Sometimes he did this with others. Book of Acts, you'll see a number of times that the, the early missionaries, Barnabas, later on, Saul, Silas, others, they would take time to encourage new believers. And that should all be a powerful reminder to us, or at least a hint to us, that encouragement is vital to the health of a church, a congregation. It's vital for the spiritual health of individual believers. See, we need to recognize we worship an encouraging God to encourage us to be like God. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 15, For whatever was written in former days i.e. the scriptures, the Old Testament, was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh. Huge parts of why God gives us the Bible, His Word, is to encourage us, to grant us courage, hope in the midst of hardship. 
in the midst of times of, of doubt or persecution or what have you. God gives us the Bible to make us bolder, to make us more confident, to make us unafraid, sure of God's love for us. But encouragement is not just something to leave to God. We do not just encourage one another saying, read your Bible more, it'll help. No, believers are to be actively engaged in encouraging one another. Paul speaks of encouraging others as one of the great gifts given to the church. Romans 12, he, he talks about the one who exhorts. We don't use the word exhort much these days outside of church settings. So I'll explain that exhortation basically means to encourage and comfort with words. Despite the fact that encouragement is, is there in, in Romans 12 alongside things like teaching and leading and prophesying and giving generously, I suspect it is often one of the more ignored gifts given. How many of us pray, God, help me to be a more encouraging person? How many of us see encouragement on the same level as preaching, teaching, giving generously, leading the church? Not many of us, I suspect. I suspect those of us who are good at encouragement are just like, well, I, I was just saying a few positive words. It was no big deal. The reality is encouraging one another is a big deal. It is important. In the letter of Hebrews, we are told to regularly meet together, specifically so that we might encourage one another. We're told there, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So I want you all to be honest with yourselves for a moment and think, how many of you came here this morning thinking, time to encourage people? I'm sure if we ask the average believer, what sorts of things should we do, you know, as part of church, as part of our corporate, our group worship? I suspect they will say things like, well, we... We should sing. We should offer prayers. We should give offerings. We should listen to the preaching of God's Word. Those are all true. You can find biblical evidence for all of that. But what about encouraging others? What about that thing that we are told to meet together to do in Hebrews? The author of the Hebrew wants to encourage to meet together. He doesn't say, it's your duty to worship God so many times. I mean, he could have. But instead, he says, don't forget to meet together because you need to encourage one another. See, the longer I am a pastor, 
and that's not that long yet, but the longer I'm a pastor, the more convinced I become that we, especially within, let's say, Reformed Christianity, radically underestimate the importance of spending time with one another as a part of our group worship, our Sunday gatherings. The believer who attends a service and then ducks out as soon as they get the final amen is only getting to experience half of what worship ought to be. You're remembering to love God with your worship, but forgetting to love your neighbor. Maybe I'm overstating it. Maybe that's a bit too much. But think about it. Use time before the worship services, between the services, after the services, to encourage one another. To not just catch up on on what's happening in the lives of others, but to also be able to offer one another encouraging words. To find out what you can pray about for other people in the week ahead. You know, if you're someone where you're like, I never know what to pray for during the week. You know, beyond the, the basics of like, thank you, Lord, for, you know, all the things I have in my life, my, my daily bread and whatnot. So often I forget what to, to pray about. Or I don't know how to pray about others. Well, perhaps that is because we need to spend more time asking others what they need prayer for. We must give others a chance to share the good things that are happening in their lives. And we must give them a chance to share the bad, hard things that are happening in their lives. That we might fulfill the command to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. We should be a people who are used to offering compliments, even about small things. Thank people for the things that they have done. Even if they're things they've done before, even if they are relatively mundane. Remind people who serve in all sorts of ways. You know, as, as ushers, as babysitters, as, as audiovisual team, as musicians or, or singers, as organizers and schedulers, that, that what they do is helpful and appreciated. And I'm not just saying encourage others because it's a nice thing to do. No, encourage others because you follow an encouraging God. Encourage others for what they have done. Thank others for what they have done. In response to all the ways that God encourages us by speaking us of the fact that we have with him you know, forgiveness, we have acceptance, we have eternity ahead of us. Encourage others, especially when we meet together on Sundays. See it as part of Sunday worship. And use the time we have together to figure out how you can help them, not just with words, but with deeds. We're told in Acts 4 that Barnabas sold a field that belonged to him and and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. 
He wasn't the only one, as we've mentioned. Many people in the early church were so overwhelmed by the grace of God that they were selling land, they were selling houses. But it should strike us as notable that that Barnabas' name gets thrown out here. That the son of encouragement did this thing as well. Because it is a beautiful reminder to us that we are not just to encourage with others, but also with deeds, with action. Barnabas didn't sell land and give it away to impress others. Now, the very next thing you can read about in Acts chapter 5, it it confirms that. You can read there the story of Ananias and Sapphira, people who sold a piece of land and wanted to impress others by doing that. Except they lied a bit about it. And they paid a terrible price. But Barnabas, we might say, gave that others might experience the encouragement that comes from seeing someone else sacrifice for your good. We're seeing love made manifest. Seeing the love of God become something tangible and real. See, we need the love of God to not just be something we talk about at church, not just something that gets talked about vaguely off the pulpit. The love of God must become real and tangible so it does not simply impact our souls, but our bodies, our minds as well. James, the brother of Jesus, tells us, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Now, go in peace was the ancient equivalent to to smashing out, you know, thoughts and prayers on a social media post and then going about your day completely ignoring what you were saying you'd give thoughts and prayers about. Don't tell people thoughts and prayers unless you want to actually do that. Back it up. The Apostle John, he agrees with James. He writes, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother or sister in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, speaking to the church there as children of God, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So if we truly desire to encourage the people around us, we must go beyond words. We can start with words, but it must go beyond words. We must go beyond giving advice and actually show up to lend our hands, our feet. We must go beyond saying positive things to people and actually do some positive things for them. We must be there for the person who expresses loneliness. We must feed the person who is hungry or is simply worried about how they'll be able to eat in the future because their budget is so tight. We must encourage others, give them real, tangible hope that they can not only believe in but experience 
Because we are people who have been given hope and encouragement in abundance. We are people who are privileged to know of all that Jesus Christ has done and has in store for us. Now, we follow a Savior who didn't just give us words. Jesus wasn't just a a self-help guru. He wasn't just a rabbi who gave a, a new and interesting interpretation on the law. Yes, Jesus did say many amazing things that we need to pay attention to and think on, reflect on, take to heart. But we also need to remember that we have a Savior who did things for us. A Savior who went to the cross for us. A Savior who allowed his body to be laid in the grave for us. A Savior who really, truly, actually conquered death for us so that we don't have to fear death. And we might know we get to live forever. We have a Savior who experienced punishment for our sins and who experienced resurrection and ascension for our benefit. He did things to encourage us. He didn't just say nice things, suggest nice things. He did and accomplished the things which have saved us, which have shown us the love of God. And so let us be people who do things as well. Be people who don't just speak of the love of God, but seek to show it, demonstrate it to the glory of our Father. Amen.